As uh, I was studying this week, uh, one of the questions that kind of kept coming back to me is, what do, you, what do you see when you look upon the cross? And I'd pose that question to you as well. Now, it maybe changes your answer a little bit, given the video that we just watched, but I ask you, what do you see when you look upon the cross? When you think of the cross, and when you think of the sacrifice that Jesus made, what comes to mind? And I was thinking this week a little bit that I wonder if as a, I don't know if we'd say just a culture or the American church or what, I wonder if we've not to some degree or maybe a great degree sanitized the cross. Making it just a little bit more palatable. I mean, we wear it around our necks as necklaces, earrings. We have it in our cars, in our homes. The cross, we find it all around us. But I wonder if we've not so sanitized that to a degree we've lost touch with the reality of the cross. Watching that video um, is a difficult thing to do. I don't know about you, but I was standing in the back and it, that hit heavy, right? The reality of the cross. The reality of the cross is a painful reality to bear. I know for many it's uncomfortable to see something like that video. I think there's a reason that not many people spend their Friday nights watching movies like The Passion of the Christ. It's painful, it's uncomfortable, it's offensive, the reality of the cross. Because to look at the cross truly, to see what the cross was, to understand what the cross was, and all that it meant is to be confronted with the horror of the cross, the gruesomeness of the cross, the suffering of Christ. And as we take that in, as we wrestle with those things, as those things permeate uh, to the depths of who we are, we are confronted with the depths of sin. And when we get real with ourselves. We remember it's our sin that nailed our Savior to the cross. It's my sin. We're confronted with the horror of it. And that's difficult at times to stomach. But to sit and let the reality of the cross sink in. So I ask you, what do you see when you look upon the cross? As we look at the beginning of our passage today in John chapter 19, the first few verses remind us of the public nature of the cross. We're told that Jesus went out bearing His own cross to the place called uh, the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. Uh, we're told that Pilate uh, created an inscription that was nailed above Christ's head, uh, which was a common thing to do, right? They would take uh, the charges of the criminal and they would post it, and then they would crucify a person in a public manner so as to be a warning to others that as passers-by would walk past the person being crucified, they would be reminded not to do the very thing that landed that person where they're at. Crucifixion was meant to be public. 
And so the horror of the cross was on display in a public way. It was meant to warn. It was meant to be a public spectacle so as to keep people in line, if you will. And so I ask you, what do you see when you look upon the cross? Because in the public display of the horror of the cross, not only is there the gruesomeness, not only is there there the suffering and all that comes with it, but there is also hand in hand with that as you grasp the horror of the cross, you grasp the glory of the cross. And that is a beautiful thing. So on one hand, as Christ is led outside the city of Jerusalem and He's hung on the cross for all to see, to mock and to ridicule, yes, but at the same time, the very glory of the cross in the same public manner is put on display. And such is the wisdom of God. To wrap our head around the fact that God in such a public way would display Himself. I think we talked about it back in uh, John chapter 17 when we were working through there. The glory of the cross. Being reminded that as you look upon the horror of the cross, you were reminded of who God is because it is there that the wrath of God is on full display. It is there that the justness of God is on display for the world to see so that we know that God is a just and wrathful God, that God detests and hates sin, but in that hand in hand comes the reminder of the great love of God for us. That as Jesus hung there and suffered the horrors of the cross, He did so for the joy set before Him. Because He loves us. They endured such things. So that the heart of God at the cross becomes visible and evident. A clear manifestation for everyone to see, for the world to see. It's, I don't think it's a coincidence that we're told that Pilate writes this inscription in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. That any passerby of the day would be able to see the proclamation, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. The horror of the cross, but the glory of the cross. In our passage today, John, in his gospel, in verse 30, gives the last word of Christ. It is finished. I was uh, chuckling, in a sense, Bill, this morning, the, the lineup of our theology class and the passages that we're working through in John, and just the, the gravity and significance of what is taking place here in John 19. It is finished. It's done. So this morning, I want to kind of key in on that. It is finished. And we're going to look at the significance of, of such a statement that surely as Jesus hung there on the cross before He bowed His head and gave up His Spirit, when He said, it is finished, surely there's the component of it as we've seen the, the theme throughout John's Gospel that He had a job, a mission, a, a, a work to do given to Him by the Father. And so He could say in that moment, it is finished. He has done all that the Father had given Him to do. He has been obedient even to the point of death, death on a cross. But I think the the beauty of a statement, it is finished, is seen not just in John chapter 19, but within that context of the whole of Jesus' life, but even more so in the context of the whole of Scripture. And the whole of Scripture, I think John uh, gives a bit of a, a, a testimony to that throughout our passage today, because when Jesus says it is finished, it takes, it takes me back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. 
At the very beginning, in, in view of the fall, the, the, when sin entered into the world and God is giving the curse to, to the woman and to the serpent, He says in Genesis 3.15 that you will strike His heel, but He will what? Crush your head. And here Jesus says, it is finished. See, the work that Jesus is accomplishing, the work that He is finishing here is not just the work of His earthly ministry. What He is finishing is the story that goes all the way back to the beginning. And so as we look at Jesus' finished work today, John is helping us to see that it is certified, if you will, by the fulfillment of Scripture. Four times in our passage today, John explicitly says that something happened to fulfill the Scriptures. Four times. And I don't think that's coincidence. And even as we look at those four things, we could see as we just look at the events surrounding Jesus' death, as we look at the events surrounding His whole life, how many things could be said of Jesus so to fulfill the Scriptures. The specific prophecies, the symbolism, all of these things that are taking place so that the culmination of the story, the climax of the story, the cross, the it is finished cannot be separated from the whole of Scripture, from the Old Testament. They go hand in hand with one another. And so the four things that John brings our attention to explicitly in our passage, number one, Jesus' robe. Right in his clothing that's divided among uh, the soldiers. They didn't want to tear his robe, but rather they cast lots for it. And this is a fulfillment back to Psalm chapter 22, verse 18. As Jesus hung on the cross, you have uh, him crying out, I thirst, and they give him sour wine. And uh, so to fulfill the scripture, going back to uh, likely Psalm 22, 15, perhaps even Psalm 42 and Psalm 63. After Jesus breathes his last, you have the soldiers coming and breaking the legs of the other criminals, but not Jesus, demonstrating that Jesus is the true Passover lamb. The fulfillment of a type that had been given to the people of Israel, uh, the one that was anticipated and hoped for, uh, fulfilling what, Jesus, what God had given to the Israelites in Exodus chapter 12, verse 46, that none of the Passover lamb's bones must be broken. None of them. Numbers 9.12, the same thing, instructing uh, God instructing the people not to break the bones of the Passover lamb, and so none of Jesus were broken either. So to fulfill the Scripture. And finally, in verse 37, they will look on Him who they've pierced, a reference back to the, the passage that we read earlier in our pa uh, service today uh, from Zechariah chapter 12, which says, I will pour out in the house of David, and they'll look upon Him who they've pierced. Four explicit fulfillments. As if John is saying, as we look at what Jesus is doing and we look upon who He is, we can have confidence that He is who He said He is. We can have confidence in His finished work on the cross. But as you look at our passage, you could go beyond just the explicit things and understand some more things. Just a couple that Jesus fulfills in His death. Verse 17 as we started out, it says that he went out. If you remember uh, back to the end of our Hebrews series that we did a while back uh, in Hebrews chapter 13, the author of Hebrews writes, For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate 
in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. The thing I love about the scriptures, there is no coincidence. And he went out. Again, fulfilling that type. Verse 17, uh, right after that, we're told that he goes out bearing his own uh, cross. Reminiscent of Isaac, Abraham's firstborn, who God instructed to sacrifice him. And as they climbed the mountain to Moriah, Isaac carried the wood for the, the sacrifice, the offering that was himself, right? Jesus being that fulfillment carrying his own cross. Verse 18, uh, Jesus crucified with two others, one on either side, Jesus between them, bringing to mind Isaiah 53.30 that uh, this suffering servant would be numbered with the transgressors. He's counted a criminal. He's crucified with them. Verse 29, the the sponge full of uh, sour wine on a hyssop branch, which is one of those minor details that sometimes goes slipped by. But if you go back to that first Passover, all the way back in Egypt, God instructed his people to take what? A hyssop branch to to spread the blood of the lamb across the doorpost. And so I don't think it's coincidence that John says, hey, they used a hyssop branch. Guys, we serve a God of the details. And all of these things coming to fruition and fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ ought to give us such confidence that we could believe and set our lives on it. Bill, this morning you said that this is one of those things that is a hill to die on. It is critical, foundational to the Christian faith. This is so important that God has said, here is reason to believe. I loved in our small group uh, lesson this week, if you guys had a chance to look at it, there was an, an illustration in there, remember? of the likelihood, uh, a professor, Professor Stoner is his name, and he was working with some of his students, and, and he, he used this illustration. They tried to figure out what's the, the statistical probability of somebody fulfilling eight Old Testament prophecies, one person. So in our small group lesson, he went through this and said that it's the equivalent of one in ten to the 17th power. That's well, pretty crazy. For your math recap, that means you take a ten with 17 zeros after it for one man to fulfill eight. And he says in the illustration that would be like filling the entire state of Texas with silver dollars two feet deep, marking one of those silver dollars with a pen, blindfolding someone and telling them to walk as far as they want in any direction, but they must select that one coin. Just eight prophecies. But in his book, Science Speaks, just to dive a little bit further into it, he takes it to the nth degree. To make it a little more interesting, uh, keep those silver dollars, but let's say that one man fulfills 16 prophecies of the Old Testament. Suddenly the probability goes to 1 in 10 to the 45th. So take all those silver dollars and push them all together into a big ball take the center of that ball and place it at the center of the sun. And the diameter of said ball would be 30 astronomical units. Anybody know what an astronomical unit is? Approximately 93 million miles. 
that would mean that for one man to fulfill 16 Old Testament prophecies in himself would be the equivalent of all those silver dollars packed into a ball, the edge of which would be near the orbit of Neptune. Mark 1, blindfold them, pick any you want. It's got to be that one. So to fulfill the Scriptures. But Jesus fulfilled far more than 16. We mentioned only eight today. We cannot begin to grasp the certainty that the fulfillment of Scripture offers. To do so, I love this one. Now, this is the last illustration I'll give of it because it blows my mind. Take that 10 to the 45th, and we have to use a smaller particle than a silver dollar. You've got to jump down to an electron, okay? For your science recap of the day, an electron is subatomic, smaller than an atom. If you take all of those electrons and you put them side by side with each other, they would make a line about an inch long. That's not very big, right? But if we were to count each of those electrons, say you could count 250 of them every minute, and we counted day and night nonstop, 250 a minute, it would take you 19,000 million, million years, 19 million years to count all of those electrons. But if Jesus only fulfilled 48, not just 16, but 48, you could take those electrons and put those into a ball and place them at the center of the sun. That ball would fill not just our galaxy, but at the time that that was figured, the entire known universe, trillions and trillions and trillions times over. It is finished. That ought to give us some confidence in the work of our Savior and what He has done so that when we read the words of John and and the apostles and and the other uh, Gospels as well and see this was to fulfill the Scriptures, underline that. This is significant and important. And so the reason that God has given us all of the prophecies, the reason that He's given us all of these things, and, and, and I've wondered that at times, why, not, why go through the law? Why go through all the sacrifices? Why do all that? Why not just jump to sending Jesus and, and, and jump to all that? Why give all of the background? Why give the years and years and years of story and the prophets and all of these different things? Why do that? Why? So that we might have certainty that when He does send His Son, that He is the Son of God and that we can trust in His work and He has given us the pictures and the symbols and everything in His law to to wet the palate, if you will, so that when we see it happen with Jesus, we're like, that's it! That's what we've been looking for. And we would have confidence and hope and certainty to place our faith, our belief, rest our lives on this very thing. The climax of the whole story. 
to fulfill the Scriptures so that we may believe. And belief is what's so critical. Bill this morning talked in theology class about our faith and belief not being an idle one, one that produces fruit. And I'm reminded back to the the necessity of belief in Hebrews chapter 4. The author of Hebrews talking about this rest, this rest of God that was promised to the Israelites under Joshua's leadership. And he, he makes the argument that if Joshua had achieved that rest, there wouldn't be room for another rest to be promised. But yet there is. And so he says in Hebrews chapter 4 that the good news has come to us just as to them. But the message that they heard didn't benefit them because they weren't united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. So to fulfill the scripture that we might believe and enter that rest. And so, brothers and sisters, we at the core of our faith must rely wholeheartedly on the faithfulness of God. We rely on it because He has fulfilled His promises. We rely on it because it is not of our own doing, but it is His finished work. There's a reason that you and I didn't go to the cross. That God didn't send you to go and bear the iniquities of all mankind. There's a reason that God did that so that we might believe and enter that rest. So I start there. That if we are going to look at the cross and the glory of the cross, it is is certified in the fulfillment of Scripture that we can have certainty, confidence, not to just lean on it a little bit, but to jump all in. And that's what's necessary to enter into the rest. Belief presents itself in action. Number two, Jesus' finished work clears your record by His sacrifice. Clears your record by His sacrifice. It's been said that the Greeks prided themselves in being able to convey a whole lot and a whole little. Right? They could pack a punch with one word, if you would. And so it seems to be when Jesus says, it's finished because uh, he uses this one word. To us, it's three. It is finished. To him, it was tetelestai. One word, tetelestai. And in that, like I said earlier, the, the, the culmination, the finishing of his earthly ministry, the, the bringing to fruition of the whole, uh, of all the scriptures, but I, I, there's, there's more to it as well. So much packed into tetelestai, one word. Because what we know is that, uh, like that word that we looked at in theology this morning, that was the counting term. That at times merchants would use this word tetelestai when a debt had been paid in full and someone owed them an account and they paid that tetelestai. It's finished. It's been brought to an end. But the interesting thing is that even within the Roman judicial system, if you will, when a criminal was sentenced, they would give them what was called a certificate of debt. And on a certificate of debt, they would list the crimes that this person must pay for. And they would post this certificate of debt on the outside of their cell so that when they had paid their full sentence, what was stamped across their certificate of debt was tetelestai. It is finished, paid in full. So they couldn't fall victim of double jeopardy and pay for the same sin, the same crime, twice. And so Tetelestai became 
in all practicality, a banner of freedom. I've paid it in full. I have nothing against my account. And so I believe, man, as Jesus cries out to Telestai, he's bringing it all to a close and saying, the debt is paid in full. The fullness of the wrath of God satisfied in his sacrifice. His body broken, his blood shed. to fulfill your debt and mine. And so my banner of freedom to tell us die in Christ. It is finished. It is paid in full in Christ. It's not my good deeds. It's not the fact that I can say in one day, I was a good person. I was, I was generous. I served people. I, I went to church. I was a pastor. I mean, for crying out loud, how much better can it be, right? That has nothing to tell us I in Christ. It is not of myself. My banner of freedom, your banner of freedom, is it is finished. We point to the work that Jesus did on the cross and say, I claim him. It's finished. Paid in full. He's wiped our account clean. And so, uh, as the Jews had gathered for this festival and this feast, another picture of that is seen again in verse 17 when it says that Jesus went out. Because it would have been customary at the Day of Atonement for the priest to have uh, after making sacrifice for himself to, to purify himself and his family, uh, he would have these two goats. We talked about this as well. These two goats. One of those goats would be killed and his blood sprinkled in the Holy of Holies. The other one, the priest, the, the high priest, would come and lay his hands on the head of the goat and confess all of the sins of the nation. And what they did with that goat is they would release it into the wilderness. This going out. So I think there's a picture that as Jesus goes outside the city limits, a picture and reminder that he has taken our sins in their entirety away. We bear them no more. He has removed them, as the Scriptures say, as far as the east is from the west. It is finished. So as we look upon the cross, we look upon it and see the horrors of the cross, the gruesomeness, the agony, the, the suffering, but we see the glory of the cross. We see the love of our God and our Savior towards us. That as He sacrifices Himself and clears our record, the last reminder that we see is that He has completed our salvation. Completed it. That we would look upon Him, as Zechariah says, and John reminds us of in verse 37, that we would look upon Him 
That brings back to mind going back to John chapter 3. Remember when Nicodemus came and spoke with Jesus in the night. And Jesus says that just as the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, that all who would look upon it would be healed, so too the Son of Man must be lifted up. That when we look upon him and believe, we would be saved. So here Jesus raised up on the cross that we would look upon him for our salvation. To look upon Him and Him alone and trust and believe in His finished work. Because unlike the high priest who would go back year after year after year to perform these sacrifices, Jesus did it once and for all. And so we look back on that sacrifice. We look back on what Jesus has finished and we trust wholeheartedly in that. But this completed and finished work so often is misconstrued into a completed and finished work, if you will. It's done. So I don't have to do anything. It has no demands on me. It's all my sins have been forgiven, past, present, future. And how many people view it as a license to do whatever they want? That's not what this completed salvation means. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 outlines the gospel that he has shared with them. And he goes through the whole thing. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. He was buried. He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas and to the Twelve. And he goes on and talks about the resurrection of the dead. And how could you not believe in the resurrection of the dead if you don't believe in the resurrection of the dead and all this. And his conclusion of it is this. After he says, listen, Jesus has risen, he concludes by saying that if the dead are not raised, then let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. In other words, if Jesus did not rise from the dead, then do whatever you want. Go on living and, and, and splurge your life on your own interests and desires and the joys and fleeting nature of all things. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Just make the most of it. Have fun if Christ didn't rise from the dead. But, that not being the reality, his argument that Jesus has risen, he therefore calls the Corinthians and says, so wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. In other words, Paul is saying, sin and do whatever you want if Christ didn't rise. But if He did, and He is the triumphal King, then do not go on sinning because that means that you have been bought with a price and you have been made new in Christ. That imputation that we talked about if you were in theology this morning. You have been made new in Him. You have been given and have received in Jesus His righteousness. So live it. Put off the old self and put on the new. And walk with Him. It's no wonder that uh, there's a co not a coincidence when Pilate says that this is Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. That ticked off the Jewish people. No, 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 don't say that. Say that he claims to be the King of the Jews. And what I've written, I've written, Pilate said. 
<laughs> so good. Because he is the king, and if he is the king, he is worthy for us to bow before him as his servants, to submit to him, to live within his kingdom, bound by his rules, under his wills and desires, because we recognize and come to see and learn that they are good and true. And if he rose from the dead, then he is seated triumphal over all things. As Paul writes in Romans, he will not taste death again. Game changer. So wake up from your drunken stupor and do not go on sinning. But submit to him and follow him. So as uh, Philippians chapter 2 says, and work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. If it's completed and finished, how could Paul also say, work it out now with fear and trembling? We are to take it seriously. And hopefully, as, as it is in my heart, as I watch something that reminds me of the reality of the cross, that does something within me, that reminds me that there is a gravity to what Jesus has done on my behalf. Let me not abuse it. But to honor Him by living my life for His glory, I'm going to trip up, I'm going to screw up. But I praise God that His mercies are new every day. A proper understanding of the reality of the cross and Jesus' finished work will lead us to say, I want to honor Christ. I want to worship Him with my life, my attitudes, my actions, all of who I am. I want to align with Him. And so we live a life dependent on Him. Dependent on the work that He has finished. So that at the end of the day, when you and I breathe our last when all is said and done, that we could say to those around us, as Paul does, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. So it is my prayer, my prayer that each of us will look upon the promises of Scripture and the fulfillment of them in the person and work of Jesus Christ and believe and believe and that each of us could say at the end I have fought the good fight I have finished the race I have kept the faith that's my prayer that as we do this we would not lose sight of the glory of what Jesus did in his humility. So today, as we have looked at this passage, and could look so much more, we are reminded of his sacrifice that has changed the game, changed who we are, that he, his body was broken, his blood was shed on our behalf. 